Hail brothers, this is Didact with the Didactic Mind podcast back at last for the Christmas special, actually. This is Didactic Mind episode 106, One Bright Star. Very warm welcome to all of my longtime listeners on Podbean. A very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers on the site. Many, many thanks to all of you, each and every one of you, for subscribing and for your patience. I know it's kind of annoying when I just basically go AWOL for <clears throat> weeks and months. Sorry about that. <clears throat> and um, don't, you know provide regular podcasts and it has always been my aim to provide something like a regular podcast service but I can see it's been oh I don't know five weeks since I lasted a podcast uh, for the domain query series but it is something of a tradition for me to do a podcast on Christmas Day and on New Year's Day um, Christmas because it's a very special time and New Year's because well it's also a very special time and because of course it is the anniversary of the Didax Reach, the old Didax Reach blog, and therefore the Didactic Mind uh, web presence. And we're coming up on 10 years, <clears throat> believe it or not, 10 years since I started writing. And some of you, a couple of you have been there since pretty much the very beginning, which is astonishing to me. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's been 10 years since I, I, I started doing this stuff. And, you know, where did the time go? It's, it, it's just staggering to me. But uh, as always, please make sure to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Please, if you are interested, take a look at some of the offers in the, uh, the links for uh, affiliate products that will basically help me keep doing this stuff, will help me produce content and stay somewhat independent of big tech and other uh, gatekeepers and other platforms because I pay for all this stuff out of my own pocket the, the podcast hosting the website hosting all of it is it's just me and it's I mean it's not hugely expensive but it would be nice to do something with it uh, and monetize it and that's what I try to do so in the in the spirit of Christmas if you find something valuable that you enjoy and that you uh, find useful through the Amazon affiliate links or through the VPN subscriptions and other things in the links then you know, please feel free uh, it'll benefit you it'll also benefit me and it'll benefit the site so with that in mind uh, first and foremost may I wish each and every one of you listening a very very happy Christmas May the peace and blessings of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I thank you very much indeed for taking the time to listen and tune in. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and I'm really just delighted to be able to share the spirit of Christmas with you. Uh, this is the first Christmas that I've ever spent alone, and yet I don't feel lonely. And, I mean, you could... Of course, say, well, you know, Didax just being uh, trying to disguise things and, and sound chipper and optimistic when actually things are crap. I'll tell you, it's really interesting because the last couple of days, I've basically spent reaching out to people who are close to me, who are important to me, you know, contacts of mine, family and friends, and 
I've basically just tried to spread the joy and the cheer of Christmas. To me, Christmas used to be about getting presents. You know, well, I mean, it was more than that, okay? Christmas for me, back in the day when I was young, was all about going to the old country and spending time with my grandparents and my extended family. It was, it was great fun. I mean, we had so much fun back then. It was, it was terrific. We really bonded as a family unit, and I got to know my cousins really well. I got to spend a lot of good times with particularly my grandfather. Uh, my grandmother would stuff us until we couldn't eat anymore with delicious home-cooked food, um, which over time I found a bit harder and harder to stomach. But, you know, it, it was, that was their way of showing love and affection. I mean, my grandmother's way was to cook lots of food and, and spoil us rotten. And my grandfather's way was to spend time with us and uh, just talk to us. And it got particularly important as I got older. Um, I went off to college and I came back and I started working. And I remember, I mean, sitting with my granddad on the veranda, you know, in the morning, drinking a cup of tea in the, in the winter. Uh, the old country at, in winter isn't really that cold. I mean, for people who live there, it's really cold. But for people like me who've experienced like real winter, I mean, I've, I've been in Russia in winter. I've been in Moscow in December and January, and it's really freaking cold. And so I understand what real cold is. I have some idea anyway. So, you know, then it became more about time spent with family. And then over the years, I mean, the last few years, I had a couple of really disastrous Christmases. Uh, one in 2018 was really bad. Um, it, it just, it, it was one or two really, really bad Christmases where it was just like, why am I doing this? I mean, I'm going out of my way to celebrate this day, which means so much to me at a personal level. But I don't think I really understood the spirit of Christmas until fairly recently, until I became a Christian, until I bent the knee and understood that the true spirit of Christmas is about, it's, it's about peace and joy and forgiveness and compassion. And above all, it's about love. It's about the love that the Lord has for us. And the love that he showed in bringing himself into this world as a tiny little infant, that is the meaning of Christmas. And the more of that we share with our family and our friends and those around us in our communities, with our nations, the better off we are. That is the spirit of Christmas. And this year, even though I was alone, I was able to send some of that around to people that I care about. And I'm really happy about that. Uh, it just feels good to be able to say to people, you know, this, this world isn't as bad as we think it is. And as depressing and as awful as it is, uh, as horrible as it is, there is still hope in the world. And Christmas itself is 
the, the apotheosis of that hope. It's the, it's the very living definition of that hope, that God himself entered into this world and showed us what life could be like uh, with him in our lives. He loves us so much that he wants to be close to us at all times. And we reject him at our own peril. We reject him on the basis of this belief that we are, we don't need God anymore. We don't need anything like a deity. But that hope burns in our hearts no matter what. And <clears throat> I want to read you a passage from Scripture to remind you of just how important that hope is and how it can take on a physical manifestation in our lives and how that manifestation has turned into a spiritual beacon, a light for all of us. Now, what does that look like? Well, the answer comes to us from Matthew chapter 2. And you're all familiar with this passage. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of Scripture. But it's a very beautiful passage, and it's all about the import and the birth of the Savior himself. So, here goes. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way, their own country. Now, all of that is fraught with meaning and is an astonishingly beautiful tribute to the king, the, the infant child, the infant king, Jesus. And we know of him as Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace the Lord of the universe. But more than that, he is hope manifested in our lives, in our hearts. Now, <clears throat> I was at Midnight Mass yesterday at um, a Catholic cathedral. And I have to say, I mean, I, I have a lot of issues with Catholic doctrine, and I, may, I do not attempt to disguise this in the least. 
I think particularly Catholic communion doesn't make sense to me. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the whole idea of presenting a sacrifice to God does not make sense. Uh, when, the, the, when the prayer for communion basically says, we hope that, Lord, we hope that this sacrifice will be pleasing to you. What? what? I mean, what was the point of Jesus dying on the cross as one sacrifice for all forever, for all sins to be propitiated and washed away in the blood of Jesus. What was the point of that one sacrifice if every single Mass in every single Catholic church or cathedral anywhere in the world, you continually sacrifice Jesus? That It just doesn't make sense. Um, so that argument, the, the whole argument of you know, the, the, the Catholic Mass as a sacrifice, is just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And I, I've never agreed with it. Um, so although I like and respect the Catholic Church, at least up to a point, I mean, I want to make it very clear. Pope Francis is a heretic, and I can't stand that guy. The, the stuff that he says is amazingly dumb in terms of what he says about economics, so-called man-made climate change, or climate change as it's just known, at, known today, really just man-made global warming with a new coat of paint on it and, and a lot of vagary put to it. Uh, but I respect the institution and the values that the Catholic Church preaches. I don't agree at all with the notion that tradition is equal to Scripture. It's just not. I mean, the Catholics claim that their, uh, their line of popes goes all the way back to Peter. It's right there in the, in the manual. In the Bible, it says, Peter himself is writing, saying, I am no better and no greater than any one of you. I am just the same as any one of the other brothers in the church. How do you describe that as uh, him being the first pope? And Catholics will point to, well, you know, upon this rock I will build my church. And then you go into the actual Greek and you realize, no, actually, uh, Shimon Petros or Simon Pet Petros um, and Petra are two different words, two different nouns in Greek. One is masculine, one is feminine. Uh, that doesn't work. It, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work. But putting all of that to one side, uh, the homily that the chief grand high poobah or you know, deacon or bishop or whatever he's called, again, I, look, if you're Catholic and you think I'm making fun of you, I'm really not. I'm sorry if you think so. I'm just, you know, it's a bit of levity, but really the message that the deacon or bishop or whatever he was, uh, I'm not familiar with the ranks because, again, I'm not a Catholic. Uh, the, the, the message he was trying to deliver in last night's homily and sermon was, I think, very important. And it was all about why the, the challenges we face in this world. And I've been thinking a lot about those challenges today. Uh, after everything that I've experienced over the last couple of days and over the last couple of years. And many of you know my story. Um, uh, you know, it's anonymized. It, it, I, don't, I haven't told you all the details, but you know that f since 2018, since March 2018, my life uh, really just turned upside down. And I've had to let go of an enormous number of things that I once considered very important. Uh, I had to go through a lot of suffering and pain to get to where I am now. And I don't think the Lord's done with testing me. I, I really don't. I think everything that I have today 
I have because the Lord gave it to me for a reason. And I know that the Lord can take it away just as easily. And if he thinks it's necessary, he'll do it. Because in the Lord's uh, way of thinking, and by the Lord's rules, that's not immoral at all. It's not. If the Lord takes away everything you have to put you to the test, that's not immoral. Because remember, it's God's game and God's rules. So when we are tested this way, it's happening for a reason. And the homily last night was about how the world, how this year, 2022, has been really difficult. And it's one of the hardest years in memory. And it comes on the back of two years of insanity uh, with respect to the scandemic. All of the planned uh, evils perpetrated against us. All of the madness, all of the, the stupidity, all of the government incompetence that destroyed so many lives. I mean, it's almost, it's unforgivable what they did because they've never repented for what they did to us. They destroyed jobs and careers. Uh, they destroyed childhoods. They killed people by the thousands, tens of thousands around the world. They insisted on us injecting ourselves with experimental drugs that we now know are more dangerous to us than the actual disease and that they were supposed to fight. And all you can say is looking at all of this, looking at the patterns behind all of it, is that there is a real and profound and terrible evil involved in and behind all of it. There's no question in my mind that there is a guiding intelligence behind all of this stuff which is profoundly evil. And the thing is, that evil has also penetrated the church. Um, I've mentioned that I've got issues with the way the Catholics do things, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, and this particular bishop, I mean, he's very sincere. I have no doubt about it. I don't doubt his sincerity in his sermonizing, but he talked about, well, we've, we've got climate change, and it's a big problem, and we... We're, we're doing tremendous damage to the planet and we only have a short amount of time to stop it and reverse it, but we have to fix it. And it's, you know, the people who are doing the most damage are the ones, uh, the people who are being hurt the most by it are the ones who are least responsible for it. Oh, really? You sure about that? But anyway, it was a very sort of, you know, um, what you might call uh, normy way of looking at the world. Very, very normy. And I frankly expect better of Christians, like real Christians. I, I expect Christians to be red-pilled and ready for battle. But um, he plainly isn't. And it's not his fault, not really. I mean, this is the, the line straight from the top of the magisterium going all the way down saying this is what, you know, the, the Catholic Church believes in all this nonsense. And it is nonsense. I mean... There's a bomb cyclone right now uh, causing extremely cold temperatures over all of North America. I mean, across a 2,000 mile long um, uh, sort of front. And it's affecting every state in the country. I've got a good friend in Florida who's saying that temperatures have never been this cold in 40 years. 
It's the coldest winter in two generations. I mean, that's shocking. And he's, he's telling me that the temperatures are below zero uh, Celsius, not Fahrenheit, because, well, Fahrenheit's a stupid system, but, you know, he insists that the, the temperatures are so low uh, that they haven't been seen in, you know, four decades. And then we have this piece on uh, our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Voxamort, the most malevolent and terrible, uh, his website, which is by Chris Langen, the smartest man in the world, uh, by most measures of IQ. Apparently his IQ is, well, nobody's actually sure because it's impossible to measure IQ accurately at that sort of extreme uh, end of the scale. I mean, you're talking, mathematically speaking, you're talking about what you might call extreme value theory. Um, but essentially, he was saying that uh, this is this seems to be a government initiative to kill off a lot more people. And he posts anecdotal evidence about that, but when you're dealing with the smartest man on earth, I mean, he's come up with a cognitive theoretic model of the universe. And he's basically saying, based on what I've observed, you cannot explain this as just random occurrence. There does seem to be an effort by the government to seed the skies with some sort of chemicals that uh, may well create new weather patterns. Well, if that's the case, then we're in deep trouble because if there's anything governments have proven over the last two years, it is that on the surface, they are deeply and unbelievably incompetent. And beneath the surface, they are controlled by an immortal psychopathic evil. And if you accept that this is the case, that governments around the world, particularly in the West, are controlled by a, a genuinely evil force, then a lot of the things we've been experiencing over the past three years make much more sense. It becomes very clear to all of us exactly why we have been suffering like this for so long. Because we are under the authority of governments that Want, that are themselves under the authority of a power that wants to destroy us. Or if it doesn't want to destroy us, then at least wants to maximize our suffering and pain. Now, the one bright star that guided the wise men to the infant Jesus is the same bright star that shines in our hearts. And it guides us towards the truth. Now, we can choose to accept that or ignore it. And most of us, most of us, even Christians, ignore it. And most of us think that we can get away with it because it just makes life easier. It makes it easier for us to live with half-truths and lies. It's more comfortable. It's more comforting. And that's, that's reality. I mean, it's easy to believe the lies that you're told because that lets you live comfortably. It's easy to go along with those lies. When you start telling the truth, you start paying a very terrible price. And it's a very lonely existence to tell the truth to people and they all look at you like you're crazy. They all look at you like you're off your rocker and they'll tell you to your face, you're insane, nothing you're saying makes sense. This is what all the authorities of the world tell us and you're going against those authorities. How dare you? 
you're a conspiracy theorist, you're a nutcase, you're a lunatic, you're, you're going against the science. And then it turns out six months to a year later, you were right. Well, what do you do in that situation? How do you, how do you maintain hope? How do you maintain any sense of sanity in a world that's plainly gone crazy? Well, you have to do it by using love, compassion, forgiveness, and joy. These are the qualities of Christmas. These are the qualities that define this day. I received an email today from our friend, uh, one of my readers actually, John C911. I've appeared on his podcast a couple of times, and it was a very humbling and very gratifying email. And he said, uh, thank you for your work. It helped me, especially last year, to get through the uh, vax mandates without taking the jab. Without people like yourself and the power of God, I would have taken it. See, that's what makes things like this so important. That's, what, that's why I keep doing this podcast. That's why I keep trying to speak the truth as I see it. And we all see the truth uh, through a mirror darkly as it were, through, uh, through, a, through a, a poor lens. And it is because we don't see the truth in its fullness that we often get things quite wrong. We see this even among Christians where we argue over points of Scripture and, and issues related to the meaning of the Word, and we spend far too much being time being more Christian than thou. It's a mistake. All of us are uh, guilty of it at some point or another. It's a very silly thing to do, but unfortunately, we just keep doing it, and we need to stop. We do need to stop. We need to become more aware of these problems, and we need to try to understand the purpose and the point of Scripture itself, which is to show us the direction, the path back to God himself. And that really is the point of Christmas. I mean, there's something really special about a day when you can put aside all of these differences and just celebrate the birth of the Savior. It doesn't matter which day you celebrate it on, not really. I mean, yes, okay, Catholics and Protestants and Greek Orthodox churches celebrate it on the 25th of December, um, because that is considered historically the date on which Jesus was born. And the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox Church, which uh, is basically the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, the, the various uh, Eastern European churches, Serbian, Georgian, Armenian, uh, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, back when it was a thing, the heretical offshoot, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. Uh, you, I, by the way, there's a very interesting article on RT.com about the, uh, the, the problems with the Orthodox um, schisms in Ukraine. Very, very interesting, very, very much worth reading. It's an op-ed article uh, about, uh, it's by, what, does, uh, what does it say? It is by uh, Georgi uh, Tkachev, 
Uh, and Georgi is basically talking about the schisms that have taken place since the February 24th special military operation. And he's basically talking about how the Orthodox Church of Ukraine broke away from the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and has disavowed the Moscow Patriarchate and you know, this and that and the other. I mean, you know that 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 um, that skit from Monty Python in the life of Brian, you know, basically the Judean People's Front versus the People's Front of Judea, that sort of thing. This is kind of what it sounds like, uh, admittedly. But there's more to it than that. I mean, there's a reason why uh, orthodoxy is is just as full of schism of uh, schisms and anathemas and bans and problems as any other mainline denomination of Christianity. But the point is that we can put all of those differences aside for this one day where we are all of us united in the spirit of love and forgiveness. Uh, whether you celebrate Christmas on December 25th or January 7th, to me it doesn't really matter. I mean, the Orthodox types celebrated as nine months to the day of the Feast of the Assumption, I think it is, uh, which is basically the, the, the feast day that commemorates when the Virgin Mary uh, found herself to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And whereas the, the, the other denominations just look at Christmas as this is the historical date on which Jesus was born. Well, okay. Um, Either way, the, the spirit of Christmas remains the same. It remains one of hope, faith, and above all, love. The Supreme Dark Lord, our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Voxamort, the most malevolent and terrible, once wrote, and actually he's written this several times, and I think he's absolutely right, that marriage is the... Uh, marriage is the embodiment of love and children are the embodiment of hope. And that's absolutely true. Joseph married Mary, even though she was with child and he being a righteous man resolved to divorce her quietly. That's what it says in right there in the book. And uh, being you know, a, a decent, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, you know, this is from Matthew chapter 1, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he shall save his people from their sins. Now, Joseph could have chosen, because he had free will, to ignore this and do something else. But out of love for his wife, his, his bride-to-be, his betrothed, his fiancée, he did not do that. He took her as his wife, married her, and did not know her until the child was born. That is the definition of love. And the child himself, Jesus Christ, is the definition of hope. The miracle of Christmas should remind us all of just how powerful these forces really are. 
I've spent the last couple of days kind of ministering to people um, in my own circle. And I don't want to go into the details, but there are people that I know who have trouble in their personal lives. And in whatever way I can, I have tried to step in and help where possible. And a lot of that just means providing a compassionate ear and providing a sounding board, basically saying, you know, have you thought about something in, in, a, in a slightly different way? Or basically just saying, I'm not here to judge you, I'm here to help you. I'm here to try, try to get you to a better place. It's something that psychologists do a lot. Um, I have much more respect for the profession of psychology now than I did some years ago because you know I've, I've used the services of psychologists and I understand where uh, they are valuable. But there is something to be said for the criticism of psychology, which is uh, basically that you're paying a friend to listen to you bitch about your problems. And I think that's actually true. I think that's fair. That's a fair criticism. At the same time, there is a lot to be said for um, having a, an impartial observer basically play things back to you and helping you vent your frustrations in a way that helps you see where you might have gone wrong. It's not easy. It's, it's really not easy. It's not easy to sit there and just listen to somebody talk and talk and talk and vent. It's very hard to do. It, genuinely, it's a skill. I know I've, I've met a few psychologists um, and gotten to know some of them very well. Uh, one or two of them very, very well. And they, these are people who are professional listeners and it's very hard on them. Um, if you try to do it yourself, you'll find yourself worn out very quickly. But it is that spirit of compassion that keeps you going. And it is that we get that spirit of compassion from the birth of the Lord, from the Savior coming into our lives, from the fact that the Lord himself wants to be part of our lives and help us uh, and be close to us. This should give us all hope for the future. If we look at the future, what does it hold? Well, it holds a lot of darkness and despair, just to be honest about it. If we look into the next year, what can we look forward to? A lot more death, a lot more suffering in Ukraine. The Russians have mobilized uh, 300,000, 380,000 actually, 380,000 men. Uh, 300,000 reservists, most of them with direct combat experience or training, and 80,000 volunteers. And they are now increasing the size of their army, their, their armed forces to 1.5 million men. It's the largest army they've had since the end of the Cold War. This is an army created for a specific purpose, for offensive action against Ukraine and really against NATO. A lot of Russians are going to die in the near future. Now, those of you who subscribe to my Telegram channel know perfectly well, I do not agree at all with these ridiculous death estimates of 100,000 dead Russians. This is garbage. This is nonsense. Uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor on Friday 
said his sources tell him probably about 30 to 35,000 Russian dead from across the entire pool of Russian manpower. I think that's actually off by a factor of two. Everything that I'm seeing indicates we're looking at probably about 15 to 20,000 Russian dead, uh, including about 7,000, 7,500 maximum regular Russian military dead. The remaining 7,500 to 12,500 dead are from the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics, their, their militias, which suffered very heavy casualties in the fighting, uh, and from the republics, the allied republics of the Russian Federation, from the Chechens, the Dagestanis, the Tuvans, the Buryats, the Bashkiris, uh, the Yakutians, uh, all of these various republics that, which are very much under the rule of the Russian Federation uh, and have supplied troops in the form of levies or volunteers or uh, through the Rasgvardia organization. It's not, it's not crippling, but it's a lot. It's the worst death toll Russia has suffered since independence in 1991. I mean, 20,000 dead in 10 months is a pretty horrendous death toll. It's not as bad as Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is suffering probably six to eight to one losses. And I would say, you know, having lost 135 to 150,000 men dead, plus another, God only knows, maybe 200,000 severely wounded uh, or 200,000 wounded of which, you know, some significant portion is severely wounded. This is a, a, a butcher's bill is just beyond count. And yet there's going to be a lot more death coming because the people who rule over these battlefields, these, these, these insane proxy wars, have no reverse gear. The neo-clowns are not prepared to admit that they've lost in Ukraine. They're not prepared to admit that the Russians are going to come in and destroy whatever is left of 404 country not found. And the Pharisaitanists who rule this, the, the empire of lies, as I've called it many times, have no ability to comprehend what they've done. They don't understand it. And their only, their only available response is basically to double down and to keep doing the same things that have failed over and over and over again, to keep trying to force the issue and force a resolution somehow in the Banderistan war. They don't understand that Russia as a country, as a nation, is fully mobilized against them. They don't realize the power of the Russian economy, as I've talked about many times. And they don't understand how weak the West actually is. Their instinct is to push forward no matter what. They don't learn their lessons. They don't understand where they're going wrong. Their only objective really is to serve their master, which is the prince of this world. An evil, immortal, psychopathic liar and mass murderer who revels in our pain and our suffering and wants to drag us down to hell with him so that he can maximize collateral damage. And the thing is, when Jesus was born more than 2,000 years ago, 
it was the beginning of the end for Satan. Lucifer didn't understand at the time what it meant when Jesus entered the world. He didn't understand why God would send himself into the world. But he was smart enough to figure out what Jesus would become. That's why he tested Jesus. That's why he tempted him in the desert. But once Jesus rose again from the dead on Easter Sunday, Satan knew for sure his time was limited. He didn't know exactly when the final fall would be. But he knew at that moment his reign would end one day. And so his entire purpose from that day to this one has been to maximize collateral damage by dragging you and me down, by destroying our sense of ourselves, by isolating us from each other, by cutting off the bonds of fellowship and brotherhood and love between men, between friends, between family, between lovers, between husbands and wives, between parents and children. All of it has been to destroy the creation that God gave us, because that's the only thing Satan knows how to do. It's, it's the only thing he's capable of doing. Whereas you and I are protected from this nihilistic, deeply anti-human approach to things through the birth of Jesus and through the blood shed upon his death. This is a very, very powerful mechanism, but we, it only works if you actually accept it for what it is. And it's still very easy to give in to despair. Believe me, I know. I mean, six months ago, I was despairing of the possibility that I would ever recover from all of my failures, that I would ever be able to move on from, from what had happened to me. And here I am, you know, six months later, thereabouts, um, I've started a new life. I'm, I, I am able to put my skills to good use. I'm able to do things that I enjoy. I'm able to earn an income. I'm able to stay where I, in, a, in a place that I like uh, for now. And I'm able to do good things with my life. And I'm able to do good things for other people that I care about. All of this, every last bit of it, is something that the Lord has given me. It's not my doing. It's something that God has given me for a purpose. I don't know what that purpose is. All I know is I was put on this earth for a reason. And God, in his wisdom, has decided that this is what he needs me to do. I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. As long as that's what, that's what the big fella upstairs is saying, you know, he's pointing me in this direction. He's saying, go down this road. Okay, I'm not going to argue with him. I mean, I've seen people who've tried to argue with God. It doesn't end well. But as long as I'm doing what he wants me to do, I'm good. That's a level of peace and contentment I didn't know was possible for a long time. That's where if you're struggling in your life right now and you're having a, a hard time dealing with the existential dread and despair that comes with a world around us that has plainly gone insane, that's where you will find hope and contentment. 
in understanding what it is that God wants you to do and dedicating yourself to it. Figuring this out is very, very, very difficult. It, at least it was, okay, it was for me, anyway. Prayer helps immensely. Finding out, you know, dedicating yourself to a prayer rule, reading the Gospels, reading the Scriptures. Reading the Scriptures in general is a great way to figure this out. It's a great help. It's a great comfort. Um, Dr. James Tour, uh, whose videos I've featured on a number of posts, talks about this in a really moving and powerful lecture um, from a while back. Uh, it was a few years ago, I think. And he talked in front of a church about the intersection of science and faith. And he talked about his own life and how he went from being a secular Jew who was addicted to pornography to a devout Christian and a family man, a man who's been married to the exact same woman for 40 some years. And I mean, he's just an astonishingly brilliant character. He's like, this is a guy who should win a Nobel Prize, and he won't win a Nobel Prize because you know he's a Christian and a, uh, a dedicated one who says that there are problems with the theory of evolution by natural selection. And because of that, of course, he is on the blacklist and will never ever win a Nobel Prize, even though he's one of the most brilliant nanotechnologists in the world. So, you know, it's cost him to speak the truth. And yet, here's what he says. And he says that he, Every single day, he devotes 15 minutes of meditation to studying the Bible. He reads passages of Scripture. He starts Genesis at, at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And he goes all the way through the Bible, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way up to Revelation itself. And he goes all the way to Revelation chapter 22, verse 21 all the way through the Bible, every single day, 15 minutes a day, he just spends on his knees, reading the Bible, trying to meditate on the Word of God. He's in no hurry. And if it takes him weeks to meditate on the meaning of a single verse or a passage in the Bible, that's fine with him. Now, I'm, I haven't gotten to that point yet. I hope I can someday. Um, but... I have certainly found it very helpful to read uh, up to a chapter, if possible, of the Word before I sleep. It's the last thing on my mind. And I read, you know, on my Amazon Kindle thing, ESV version of the Bible, I, I read through a, at least a chapter of Scripture. Uh, right now, I'm you know I, I finished with the old uh, I finished with the New Testament um, I don't know a couple of about a month ago maybe a bit more and since then I started back at Genesis chapter one and went all the way through and I'm going all the way through it again and so now I think I'm on Exodus chapter thirty seven I think. And some of it is quite boring on the surface. It's very, very boring. It's very legalistic. It's very, you know, you shall make an ark out of cedar wood and it shall be this many cubits by that many cubits and you shall inlay it with gold at these and you shall do this and you shall do that. And you just find yourself thinking, God, I mean, why, why are you being so 
legalistic and so rule-bound. I mean, where is the love? Where is the care? And then you read a passage in the Bible, and it just leaps out at you. It's like there's a reason why he's being this, forgive me for saying this, anal retentive. There's a reason why God is being like this. And there it is, right there. It jumps out at you. And you're like, wow, I didn't think of it that way. And you see the work of the Trinity. And you see the, 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 the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ all throughout the Bible. Throughout, throughout almost every chapter in the Bible, you can see something relating to the life of Jesus. And it all points directly to the same man, the same God. And you just find yourself thinking, this is a God who so loves us, who loves me, that he's willing to speak to me through the word of the Bible itself. Now, no Bible text is perfect. Uh, any translation that you pick up will, of necessity, hide a great deal of nuance. Um, a good friend of mine down in Florida, he was telling me, you know, the, the, the same friend who's basically saying, we've got the worst winter in 40 years uh, coming through here, was telling me um, about John chapter 19 and how if you read John chapter 19, it just ties the whole of the Bible together in ways that you can't really understand until you actually sit there and you go through it. And, you know, there are passages in the Bible that are like that, where you just find yourself thinking, wow, I mean... This has layers of meaning to it. If I explore it in the original Hebrew or the original Greek that I could not possibly have known. Dr. Michael Heiser's books are an excellent way of looking at this. If you look at the unseen realm, supernatural, demons, angels, you know, anything that he's written. I mean, he goes into deep detail about who the Nephilim are, where demons come from, what the angels are, what they look like. Um, angels... If you actually saw an angel with your naked eye uh, and tried to make sense of it, you'd probably go crazy because uh, if you read the prophecies of Daniel and you look at uh, the, the, the text in Revelation, and you, you look at how they describe angels, it's like, wow, this is, this is bonkers. I mean, literally, it's completely bonkers. Um, the Ophanim and the Seraphim, if you actually look at the way they're described, wow, it's seriously weird. Um, if you look at the way the Nephilim are described in the Bible, it's very brief. I mean, there's very little to go on about the Nephilim. But Genesis 6, 1 to 4, if you just read through that, you're like, okay, there's some very, very deep stuff going on here, which I don't understand. And you have to go to things like the Book of Enoch and unpack it there. And you have to look at, you know, things that don't necessarily make sense at first. But the more you dive into it, the more the living Word of God leaps out at you. And all of it, all of it points to an infant born in Bethlehem on this day under one bright star. And that star lives on in each of us. And we have to remember to, to look at it and to let it influence our lives. It's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to let go of our temporal desires, our concerns, our, the, the weight of the world on our shoulders, you know, and, and just focus on that voice that's telling us 
what it is that God wants us to do. It's very hard to drown out the cares and desires of this world. It's one of the reasons why I struggle to do what Dr. James Tour does. I mean, I keep thinking to myself, well, I need to sit down and devote 15 minutes to unpacking the Bible and just do it, you know, and put on some Templar chants while I'm doing it. It's like, ah, but I need to respond to this email. And before I know it, you know, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'll do it after I come back from going out for a walk. And then I just, I'm tired from, and I want to sit down and just let my brain disengage. And I'm like, well, I've got all these podcasts that I want to listen to. So I listen to them instead. And then it's time to go to the gym. And I come back from the gym and I'm like, I'm really tired. I just want to eat. So I make something to, to eat. And by the time I'm done with all this mucking around, oh, whoops, it's 11 o'clock at night. And now what? I just want to sit down and watch you know, Nathan Fillion in The Rookie being, well, lovable rogue Nathan Fillion. Well, at what point does God introduce himself back into my life? Only when I'm about to go to sleep, so that my last thought is a prayer to God. You know, I, just before I sleep, I mean, I, I put away my, my books and I, I just pray. And it, it helps. It really helps tremendously. I mean, I, I sleep very well most nights because of this. I'm firmly convinced this is why I sleep well. But the thing is, these rituals, these mechanistic ways of, of talking to God and having that conversation with God, it's not what God wants. He doesn't want a mechanistic relationship. He doesn't want you to just talk to, you, talk to Him because it's easy or it's a ritual. He wants you to meditate on his word and he wants you to ask him for help. He wants to be part of our lives. He wants to be with us. He wants to, he wants to walk with us in the cool of the day, just as he did in the Garden of Eden. The thing to understand is that God regards us as his holy family, but we've rebelled against him. And if you read Genesis chapters 3 and 4, and you look at the curses that God laid upon man. The amazing thing about Genesis chapter 4 is that what he said in those curses is so short. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a series of sentences. It's, you know, it's a brief series of things that God says. Uh, sorry, not Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 3. The latter half of Genesis 3, where he lays out the curses, you know, basically from verse 16 onwards. These curses are very brief and very pithy. And yet, look at the world around us and you realize just what it is we've lost. And when you look around you and you, you look at the pain and the suffering of this world, the reason it exists is because we've fallen away from God. Read Judges chapters 18, 19, and 20, and you'll understand what a, a society looks like without God. Look at Canada today, for example, where they're basically advertising uh, medically-assisted suicide, and that is a world without God. That is Judges 18 to 20. It's literally the same thing. It's a world that has turned away from the Creator. You think this is like macabre and disgusting and terrifying, 
and you're just appalled and horrified by a society that assigns so little value to human life. The reason it does so is because we've turned away from Christ and from God. But we don't have to. There's nothing in us that says we must turn away from God. We choose to turn away from God. And God chose to come into our lives through Jesus. So I want to leave you with one parting thought this Christmas. Look at the example that Jesus gave us. Look at the way in which he entered our lives and he wanted to be close to us by humbling himself as a man, coming into this world as a helpless screaming infant, not as some great and mighty king, not as some commander of armies, not as some wealthy prince, not as a great leader or a powerful orator, well, eventually became a powerful orator, so that's not entirely fair. Um, but he didn't come into this world fully formed as this, this you know, grown man capable of, of leading men through charisma and, and, and force of will. He came into this world as one of us, as an infant surrounded in blood and animal droppings. This is Christianity. Christianity is not wishing upon a star to get what you want in life. It's not about health and wealth and having a good life. It's not about wishing yourself to success. It's not about doing great and mighty works of piety and winning yourself a place in heaven. Christianity is about God becoming man in the midst of blood and dirt and the stench of unwashed animals in a manger in a small town in the city of David. It is about God loving us so much that he wanted to enter our lives and become one of us. And it is about God giving us a chance to obey the signal that he imprinted on every single one of us to come back to him and to uphold those values that he himself inscribed in our hearts. Joy, peace, faith, hope, and love. Compassion, forgiveness, humanity. This is what the message of Christmas is all about. Take that message and make it a part of your everyday life. Forgive those who have wronged you if they ask for it. Forgive them even if they don't ask for it. If, you know, if they don't, that's their problem. But forgive them and extend to them the hand of friendship. If they swat it away or if they continue to sin, that's when justice comes in. That's the part of Christianity everybody else forgets. The justice, the, the rule of law, the iron rod that will break the, 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 the clay pots, all of that. This is what comes in after all of that. But never forget the example that the God-man gave us, that Jesus gave us on this day. It only remains for me to wish you all a very, very happy Christmas. Thank you all once again so much for listening in. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 106. One bright star to guide them. 
And I am Didac. Please remember to like, share, comment, and subscribe. And that's it from me. Until next time, signing off.